New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Most of our joys and sorrows come from our connections with other people. So why does so much of our communications with others result in so much conflict and misunderstandings? How might we do better in giving others the love that we really have in our hearts? Also, how can we get better in dealing with the unavoidable stresses and injustices of our very imperfect world? Today, we'll be looking at how we can live and interact with others with open-hearted strength with our guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen is a psychologist and senior fellow at the University of California, Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and a summa cum laude graduate of UCLA. He's founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, also the founder and president of Global Compassion Coalition. He's the author of many books, including Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. Join us for the next hour as we explore effective strategies for relating better than ever with all of our relationships with Dr. Rick Hansen. I'm speaking with Rick in his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to New Dimensions. Rick, welcome. Justine, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And I have the highest regard for you and for New Dimensions. I think of just an extremely short list of institutions over the last, how long has it been? 40 years? 50? Well, 50, we're in our 50th year now. Yeah. yeah. Preeminent institutions, spreading the light, spreading the truth, bringing in new perspectives, warming the heart. It's an honor to be here. And I don't flatter people. I'm a right speech kind of person. And I just want to say all this from my heart. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. I just feel honored that you have been such a, a listener and appreciator of this work, as do I yours. So ah, um, <laughs> in this time, Rick, there are so many difficulties that occur with our 
interactions with others. And even if we live alone, we are totally wired up to an overwhelming number of people and opportunities for misunderstanding. I'd love to know what your experience in your life, how is there a need to have strategies close at hand to help us with these frustrations that you know, pop up spontaneously as we try and cope with the 21st century. Why do we need these strategies mm. close at hand? Yeah, there are probably two currents that have flowed into a, an answer to that question. One was in my own background as a kid. I was a very shy, nerdy, very young in school kind of kid, socially awkward, very insecure, feeling really inadequate, clueless, really. And I've had a lot to learn. So uh, one of the things I've really appreciated from the inside out, based on my own path, is how useful it is to know what to say, or to know what not to say, or to know what to think or not to think. I'm using the word think broadly, to know what you're doing inside the inner temple of your own being, right? So I really have learned over the years the value of being more able to be patient with others who are aggravating while at the same time being prepared very skillfully to lay down the law or draw a boundary or speak truth to power or be assertive when you need to be, hopefully with a warm and open heart. How do you bring those together? How do you navigate tricky negotiations, whether it's in your family? My wife and I have been married for 41 years. I had a lot to learn there. Parents <laughs> of two adult kids, lots to learn there. And all the rest of that, including how do you navigate situations today that are often white hot when you're just dealing with somebody you like a lot. Maybe they're your friend, your in-law, your cousin, and their politics are worlds apart from your own. How do you navigate that? Okay, that's one. The other current flowing into my answer here is 40 years probably, 30 at least officially, as a counselor. And working with a lot of families, couples, um, and, you know, different kinds of relationships, including in work settings. And what I saw again and again and again is that people would have kind of okay relationships, but there was the weight of things unsaid. There were conflicts that were just not being managed well. Sometimes people were blowing up. Sometimes there was a stony silence. Sometimes you put up with things, but they were not getting better. Very often I saw people who just didn't know what to say next. They didn't know what to do next. So in this book, as you know, 50 extremely short chapters, usually around three pages, that are really about what to do next. What can you think? What can you do inside your own mind that will be helpful to you? And what can you do with your words? Because with what we think and say each day, we make our relationships, which is full of hopeful possibility, because then we have the power to make them better. This particular book really does mm -hmm. give us something to chew on and to, yeah. to grapple with in whatever thing that we're going through at the moment. So I want to say, first of all, that one of the underlying themes is that slowing down and deep breathing. I remember you writing about how our deep breath actually engages our parasympathetic nervous system. I mean, it actually has a physical effect. 
So yeah. please tell us how, how that works. Oh, that's great. When we look back at most of the interactions that went badly, it happened really quickly, often. And so slowing it down neurologically gives your more recently evolved regions in your brain, mainly behind your forehead and the top of the brain, time to catch up to the emotional hijacking of more ancient regions like the amygdala, et cetera, that are just already racing down the highway. So if you buy yourself time, just slowing it down for a second or two or three, kind of your grandmother's advice, count to 10, sweetie. That was good advice. <laughs> yeah. Slowing it down really matters. And one great way to do that, that you're pulling out, is to draw on some very cool, nerdy brain science that's very useful, that recognizes that when we um, slow down our breathing and especially extend the exhalation, what that does is it naturally slows the heart rate while engaging the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, this regulatory system, autonomic, it's regulatory. Now we're tapping the brakes, we're slowing it down just by a long exhalation. Nobody even know, needs to know you're doing that in that tense business yeah. meeting yeah. or you know when the in-laws are around the table yelling at each other about you know Fox News or something. <sighs> Slow it down. The other thing that's really interesting is that many of our conflicts have to do with taking things very personally. Understandably, we get possessive, we get positional, we get self-righteous. I really know about building the case inside my mind at three in the morning, or I'm gonna tell them or write them or something. One good thing to do to help, your, help yourself take it less personally is to tune into the internal sensations of breathing. So while you're slowing down, you can um, help yourself take things less personally and instead see the bigger picture. You can still stand up for yourself as a person without getting caught up in the self-contraction. I want to say something about that, Rick, because this this is like in in speaking, when we slow it down, I, I it has been my experience that when I really stop and check in with my body sensations or even my emotional being before I speak, I get beyond the content of what I'm just going to kind of put out in the world. I'm just going to respond or react to something. I might find myself um, saying something surprising to even me. Do you, mm -hmm. do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, you're getting more in touch with yourself. You're getting, you know, you're, you're one of the, the first chapter of the book is be loyal to yourself. It, you know, get on your own side. It does not mean being dominating or abusive with others. It just means being a friend to yourself like you would for another person. And as part of that, absolutely, we need to explore ourselves. We need to be mindful of what we're really feeling. Uh, this, I think probably the second chapter in the book, from memory, is titled Let Be, Let Go, Let In, which is about this fundamental process, these three great ways to practice with your own mind. And the first of which is the foundation. Be with what you're experiencing. Slow it down even so you can catch up to your own innards. You know, really foundational. That's not the only 
practice, though. We need to work with the mind, not just be with the mind. And we need to act skillfully with other people. But absolutely, some later chapters are things like speak from the heart. Right. Right. And that's in touch with your experiences as you share it with others. If we're speaking from a heart, it's actually a heart centered speaking. I mean, it's, it's, it goes beyond the head, then it, it adds to maybe your intellectual knowledge and what you know. There's an authenticity then in the conversation. I think that's what I'm talking about here is, is when we are with someone, and they're speaking authentically. It's like yeah. we automatically perk up to listen, don't we? Yes. They're they're in touch with their feelings. They're not running a number on us. They're treating us as a thou rather than as an it, using Martin Buber's structure here. And just looking at you right now, Justine, because we're seeing each other, I'm minded to say that part of what we're talking about is trusting yourself in a deep way. And I find this to be especially important for people who belong to groups, such as girls and women, who tend to be socialized to not trust themselves. And over-defer to authority in patriarchy or whatever the structures may be. Um, And so trusting yourself is really, really part of kind of owning your own truth. And being more relaxed about releasing it into the world. We'll, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And you can be in touch with him and his work. Go to Rick Hansen, spelled S-O-N-H-A-N-S-O-N dot net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's the author of Making Great Relationships, as well as many other books. So, Rick, you just have a wonderful library that anyone can tune into and just be supported in very deep and authentic ways. Compassion is a big one for you and what's important to you. And what I love about what you talk about when you bring up compassion, especially in this book, you talk about it as, first of all, first of all, be compassionate toward 
ourself. Right. Living hurts sometimes. And it hurts a lot sometimes. And in fact, sometimes it hurts all the time, even a lot. And compassion is a natural caring response to suffering broadly. And we can bring it to ourselves as well as to others. Much research shows that many people are much better at being compassionate toward others than they tend to be toward themselves. Actually, as a detail, that's kind of interesting related to what I was bringing up a moment ago about the ways that girls and women are socialized. Men, you know, tend to be more self-compassionate than women tend to be on average. That's a generalization, partly because women tend to be so self-critical partly because of a lot of the messaging, of course, in the culture. So self-compassion. Now, to be clear, self-compassion or compassion in general does not mean agreement or approval. And one of the things I work on is I work on my capacity to have compassion for someone I disagree with immensely, like Donald Trump. We can have compassion while being very clear in our moral view. Similarly, we can have compassion for ourselves while guiding ourselves along the way. We don't have to beat ourselves up. We can guide ourselves. We can keep functioning and keep performing and keep succeeding while still having compassion for ourselves. And research shows again that self-compassionate people are more resilient, they're more able to bounce back, and they tend to be more ambitious because they're more willing to risk flopping. (laughs) They don't want to flop. That's (laughs) interesting. But they're not going to be, they're not going to kill themselves if they flop or be super harsh to themselves, right? So self-compassion is a very, very, very good thing. Well, I'm thinking of um, when I was delving into your work here, I was thinking about, I thought of it for myself, building my compassion muscle. Yes. It's <laughs> what I thought. And I, I I thought like, okay, all right, here's, here's something. Uh, I... I live by myself these days. Michael, my partner of many years, has passed on, and so I'm I'm living on my own. Yeah. So I'm not in touch with people rubbing shoulders in the household, so to speak. Yeah. However, I am rubbing shoulders with those people. We would call it um, customer service. Mm-hmm. And you make that phone call, and then you get, you know, you're trying to talk to someone, a real live person, and it goes on and on and on and on. And finally, finally, you get to that person after maybe you've been online for a a half an hour or more, just waiting. Mm -hmm. And that frustration builds up and builds up. And you just want to pour all of that frustration out on this poor person on the other end of the line trying to help you. And that's what I'm talking about, where that building my muscle of compassion for myself and for that person to not just blow up there in frustration. Maybe others feel this, too, Mm. you know, can feel this. Oh, yeah. One of the striking things is that... You, well, you may know the saying from Alcoholics Anonymous that resentment is like taking poison and waiting for others to die. Or the parable or metaphor from early Buddhism, uh, getting angry at others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful to appreciate that when we get caught up in a rancor 
or ill will against others, that's a weight in our own heart. It's a burden on us. And it's stressful on the inside, which has long-term bad effects on both health and longevity. The art that I find really interesting, and in in a way, I really wrote this book about it. How do you bring together love and heart and kindness and compassion? How do you bring that together with standing up for yourself and being assertive and clear and strong and managing the understandable emotionally negative reactions to other people? I've been engaged in personal practice easily since 50 years. Still, (laughs) things happen. People are, you know, rude to me in a meeting or cut me off on the freeway or my wife says something kind of snippy. It's normal. Okay, how do we do both? How do we be real and big monkeys? That's what we are. How do we (laughs) be be our nature? Uh, How do we stand up for ourselves and how do we do it in a framework of love? And that's what the book is really about. It's about the how-to. There's all this preaching about you ought to do it, you ought to do it, you ought no, to do it. Great. No. Tell me how. Tell me how. This yeah. book's about <laughs> yeah. telling telling me how. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And you said something earlier about that inner critic that we have, wow. you know, that right. compassion for ourselves, and we're very critical of ourselves. And But you also bring up another item. I mean, there's so many how-to books about the self-critic, our inner critic. We all know that one. It's all it's all over the place. But you talk about our self-protector. I love that. That just sort of popped out for me, self-protector. Tell us about our self-protector. Oh, this is such an important point. I'm so glad you picked you picked it up. Uh, so the mind is like a village. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of characters, like a zoo, if it's my mind. And so some of them, and they're all trying to help you, but they often do it in misguided ways. So you have maybe these parts often internalized from how other people treated you, even as a kid, that are yelling at you or shooting you or guilt-tripping you or shaming you or pressuring you constantly to always, you know, be better today. Fine. What we can do is we can push back against those pressuring, pushy, punishing voices, but that takes a lot of work and takes time. It's actually more effective especially in the beginning, to build up your inner allies. Build up your friends inside you. Those who see the good in you, the parts of you that see the good in you, that are encouraging, that are nurturing, that are kind. Maybe they're the internalization of coaches you've had who were good coaches. I think of rock climbing guides I've had who in a joking way will say, Rick, stop whining, start climbing. But they say (laughs) it with a smile. They're kind about it. And they're telling me what to do to be better. There's a place for that. So how do you grow those parts of yourself? You can use positive neuroplasticity. What that means is that when you're having an experience of guiding yourself, seeing the good in yourself, appreciating yourself, when another person is seeing the good in you, when you're having these experiences, those songs are playing on your inner iPod, slow down and turn on the recorder. 
Mm. Take in the good. This is a lot of my work on the Mm. internalization of beneficial experiences to steepen your growth curve and your healing curve and to build up over time emotional residues, somatic residues in in your body in which you that are inner strengths of various kinds. So just like I said, when you get those that kind of support, slow it down. Mm. Mm. And those voices those allies inside you will become increasingly powerful and more able to stand up against, you know, that little Mr. Nasty who's yelling at you <laughs> from the other side of the room. Our inner Mr. Mrs. Ms. Nasty, right, yeah, exactly. Right. But that also takes me to your story that you bring up, and we've heard many times the story of the um, two wolves inside, the one wolf that's angry and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, full of fear also and other things, and then the other wolf that's more loving and and empathetic and friendly and so forth, and what what you brought up with that, and I I know it's which wolf are you going to feed, and yeah. that that we've heard that story before, but one thing that you brought up here is has to do with if even if if we hate that mm. one wolf that brings up fear and envy and all of that stuff, that that energy will actually make it stronger. So in other words, our resistance sometimes is the very thing that's what we're resisting gets bigger. Uh, So I'd love for you to talk about resistance and how we take in some of this stuff that that is not comfortable to take in. Such a great question. Uh, Three things, two of which don't work. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thing number one is to identify with the parts of yourself that are problematic or reactions, to get caught up in ruminating so you're identified with it. That doesn't work well. You know, they did me dirt, I'm going to get them, vengeance, vengeance, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't work, okay? Second thing that does not work is resisting or fighting with that part of yourself, arguing against it, getting caught up and obsessing about it, where it's like one part of you is like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. You know, (laughs) kill Frodo. No, no, don't kill Frodo. Blah, blah, blah. Back and forth. You know, poor Gollum was going crazy. Didn't work. You know, the kill Frodo voice sure didn't go away. If anything, it kind of feeds it. It tries to suck you in. It's like that annoying person, you know, at a at the other end of the bar is trying to get you into an argument, stay out of the argument, or some a troll on social media. That doesn't work. Okay, what does work? The third thing that works is to step back from those parts of yourself. They're there, they're trying to help you, but to be mindfully aware of them with a lot of spaciousness. So that angry, hateful, resentful, vengeful voice is still ranting away in a space of awareness that's untroubled. And what starts to happen is that you immediately disrupt the reinforcing of that part of yourself because you're not feeding it at all. You're not feeding it by agreeing with it or by fighting with it. You're not feeding it in either way. You're being mindfully aware of it. You're stepping back from it. You might get sucked in again, many times in fact, 
but then you just step back again. You step back again. And after a while, that becomes your habit. More and more, your mind is quiet. It's There's a field that's quiet in which noisy voices sometimes are yammering. <laughs> you know, uh, you have an analogy that you mention in your writing in that um, the sky is not affected by the clouds. And I, I love that. I That's just like, oh, right. Okay. And that's, I think, what you're talking about a bit. I, You know, the clouds exist, the anger exists, but it's we don't have to be affected by it. I'm here, want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's the author of Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connections, and Fostering Love. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, author of many books, including Making Great Relationships. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the difficulty of coping with all of our relationships and how do we make them more effective and loving. And one of the things that you talk about is an open, spacious heart. And I'm thinking about it in the context of homelessness. I know that that's a big leap, but you know, we're all aware of those people who are unhoused and we drive around, we see them there with their shopping carts and all of their belongings with them as they cart them around. But you use a phrase that really popped for me. You talk about our inner homelessness and I, I would really love for you to describe what you feel that is and how it lands for us in our hearts. Mm. Well, thank you. And first, to be very, very clear, I'm not trying to equate in any way, shape, or form the consequences of inner homelessness with the consequences of outer unhousedness or outer homelessness, to be crystal clear about that. Mm-hmm. Um It's sometimes said that the root of all sickness is homesickness. The root of all sickness is homesickness. And that's a very deep and profound kind of proverb. What does that mean? Our home base, biologically, has evolved, you know, primates, hominids, Stone Age humans, modern humans. Our home base and that of other complicated animals is a fairly peaceful contented, and depending on the species, warm-hearted place. That's our home base. That's Mother Nature's blueprint for maximum effectiveness in the world, resilience, coping, positive relationships, passing on genes that pass on genes. That's her longevity, health, and all the rest of that. The problem is we get driven from that home base routinely by chronic stressors. Most episodes of stress in the wild end quickly, one way or another, 
for other species. But for human <laughs> Either beings, we're killed by the tiger. Yeah, or we get away. Or we get away. Right. <laughs> As Robert Sapolsky, extraordinary professor, Stanford, wrote in his book, that's why zebras don't get ulcers. Humans get <laughs> ulcers because we're exposed to chronic, often mild, but still chronic stressors that push us away from the green zone of our home into the red zone continuously. And people can become increasingly alienated from themselves, from their core of being. That's why it's so important, uh, as I talk about in the book and how to do it, to come home multiple times a day for half a breath or two or three breaths in a row or have some kind of practice while walking the dog, making a meal, offering a prayer, saying grace, uh, looking back on your day just before sleep and just kind of slowing down and appreciating what was good in it amidst all the crazy. Um, we need to come home multiple times a day to know what it's like to be at home inside ourselves. And then increasingly, you are at home inside yourself wherever you go you know, with, with practice over time. Or if you get driven from your home for a few minutes, something happens, someone is really offensive with you, or you see something that's just appalling, or your trauma is triggered from your childhood, okay, you might leave that centered place from home for a few minutes few hours at the most, but you can find your way back really quickly the more practice that you have with this homecoming. And this is completely fundamental. So I'm thinking, Rick, this is really a, a bodily thing. I mean, an, it's an inner refuge, but it's where I, I, I imagine it when you're talking about it just now is Okay, taking that deep breath and coming back into a, an awareness of my own physical being and the chair I'm sitting on and just feeling like, oh, in this moment, I'm okay right now, right here, right now. I'm yes, okay. Yes, and, and there's a really important point here, which is that sometimes we're not really okay. So there's nothing about this that's positive thinking, looking right. at the world through. If anything, the harder your life, the more it sucks, the more important it is to build up the strengths inside that you and I are talking about, right? So what is that sense of home? Uh, it's a sense of your field of awareness. It's a sense of a kind of an innermost core of being that at bottom is good, is loving, is wise. Uh, it is to feel in the present that you are safe enough, satisfied enough, and connected enough, which is our three major needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, so that authentically, even if it's not perfect around you, in the core of your being, you're basically all right right now, like you said. Also, you can feel content. There's an enoughness in the present on the basis of which you could still aspire, you could still dream big dreams, dare greatly, as Brene Brown puts it, on the basis of an underlying sense of contentment. This is the heart of the wisdom teachings of so many traditions, including my own root tradition, early Buddhism. And then love. You feel connected enough in the moment. Your heart's open, right? It might be nice to have more people like you, more people love you, you want to get more I don't know, five-star ratings on Amazon for your book or something like that. But there's an enoughness about it, you know, an enoughness. So, you know, that's that's what I mean by home base. It's not airy-fairy. It's not new age. It's not metaphysical. You're right. There's an embodied sense of being at home. But you can just hear my words. 
as I speak here, both of us are getting in touch with this homecoming. I can feel it in myself. I can see it in you. Maybe people can hear it as we talk. We know what it's like. And it's important to protect your home. It's important to protect your home and to be careful about the world jostling you out of it, other people bullying you, pushing you around. No, you know, uh, you may, um, you know, you don't get my home. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. I, I, I live in my home. It's my home. Uh, you know, I'm not going to allow you to drive me away from it or to right. possess it yourself. Rick, I'm going to take a leap here. Um because there's a story that you tell, and I'm going to, I don't know if I can marry this story mm. with what you just said about our home, yeah. but somehow I feel it's related. And you tell a story about doing some diving at some point in the ocean, and you were going into a kelp oh, yeah. forest, yeah, and you got tangled up in that. How you got out of that is somehow coming home to yourself. So I nearly drowned. I was off the coast of California, trapped in kelp. I was about 16. And um, in a, an experience that was quite extraordinary, and, that, and it's kind of sacred for me, um, after panicking, so basically I completely panicked. It thrashed, I was drowning. I was going to die. I was going to die. And then after some period of panicking, uh, there was a shift of consciousness and a completely calm, peaceful, untroubled kind of awareness was present. And on the basis of it, with my mask around my neck, my snorkel out of my mouth, I had lost a fin from panicking and thrashing, I very calmly began to pluck the the ropes of kelp off my body so I could gradually work my way upward through them rather than it being like one of those Chinese finger traps Mm -hmm. where you, you... the more you pull, the tighter it gets. And then I cleared the kelp, went up to the surface, and then normal consciousness returned. But many of us also have a sense, have had experiences that at the base of our home, at the foundation of it, the ground of it, does move into something that's transcendental, that's mm-hmm. unconditioned, perhaps, as the Buddha taught, and perhaps with other attributes of awareness and love. And I'm thinking in that case, you became in in this panic, in this terrible situation. It was terrible. I mean, you could drown. I mean, you were close to drowning. And in that way, when you went into that other consciousness, and I'd say it's a personal refuge of mm-hmm. consciousness, you became effective. That's correct. So we're more effective when we're not thrashing around against it all, coming home to ourselves, and then out of that place, mm. we can be more effective. Yes, and exactly. You got it, Justine, which is you, because you always do. <laughs> uh, we surrender some, we have to surrender to what is necessary. And sometimes it's poignant you start to realize that given your values and given the realities of life, it's necessary to get out of a certain job or a certain relationship, or it's necessary to start working with different people, perhaps in some enterprise you're engaged with, or it's necessary to stop drinking. You can't drink moderately 
so you can't drink at all. It's just necessary. Or it's necessary to um, do the hard thing and admit fault with another mm. person. But there's a kind of surrender there. So what happened for me in the kelp is that I surrendered to what was necessary. And that surrender has a kind of power of its own. You start to feel like in this relationship, for example, not with the drama of nearly drowning, but in the ordinary rough and tumble of life, you know, we need to tell the truth here. We need to uh, be more real with each other. We need to be brave enough to be authentic, like you were saying in the very beginning. It's necessary. And then there's something really peaceful when you surrender to what's necessary. It has a power all of its own. You're not second-guessing yourself anymore. You're not going back and forth like Gollum, you know. You give up. You give over to what is actually necessary for the good, including of yourself. Right. Even when it's difficult, let's say, and you mentioned it earlier, that like you're having a difficult relationship and Maybe it comes time to, well, number one, to tell the truth. Yeah. But there's a kind of truth-telling that you advocate that's with often both authenticity and kindness. So we're we're not uh, blaming people or we're not I, we're approaching it differently. Is that what yeah. you're helping us to see oh yeah it's funny as you know the book has structured in six parts and part i think five is the longest by far and it's i think it's something like speak wisely uh because mm. there's a lot of how-to about that so i'm drawing on lots of good research and practices and teachings of others including things like nonviolent communication from marshall rosenberg plus his memory uh, but the how-to is really useful to know how to like for example how to watch your tone one mm. of the things i've really learned is the impact of tone what you're saying could well be true and it's your right to say it but when you start adding that top spin of tone, you know, your eyes start to roll or you start getting exasperated or like, I can't believe I'm having to tell you this for the third freaking time. <laughs> you know, yeah. that that's what people react to. Go. And, you know, there's a place for communicating anger, but watch your tone. Well, I want to go more into this. We can't leave this subject uh, hanging yeah. here, but I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and he's the author of Making Great Relationships. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Rick Hansen, and we're talking about many, many subjects, but right now, this subject that we're really starting to delve into is watch your words. And one of the things that you bring up in the book, and you do it several times, and it, I think it's such wise advice, and this has to do with watching our words and being empathetic, and that's looking at the faces, mm. observing the faces of the people with which we're speaking. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that can be gleaned from that. And we kind of talk beyond it and we don't even notice each other. So oh, yeah. let's talk about that. Oh, so sweet. Uh, first, when I say watch your words um, or speak wisely, it's not about tone policing, as they say. And it's it's not about some kind of suppressing of yourself or there's some magic formula way to say it. Just obviously recognizing that we can be more or less skillful with our speech. And very often the words we use and how we say them with our tone has a lot of impact. This also includes how we talk with ourselves. Mm -hmm. How do you talk with yourself in a way that has wisdom in it and benevolence? woven together? Can you speak to yourself in a way that's wise and caring and kind? Mm. Very important. So all that said about faces, yeah, it's so interesting how we just blow right by each other routinely and we don't slow it down. For that second, to track micro expressions around the eyes, we have the most, the most expressive eyes of any species on the planet. Wow. Also look at micro expressions around the mouth. Very expressive. You can get a lot of information from other people, especially if you slow down and kind of uh, receive them, right? Rather than jumping to a conclusion. And I find that this is really helpful because it gives you information. You're reserving your rights. Doesn't mean you're agreeing. Um, it also helps you deal with your anger because if you're getting mad at somebody, but if you slow it down to have a feeling for them as a being, a thou that you disagree with, that you oppose, that you're mad at, okay. But as you have a sense of them as a thou, you're much more likely to be reasonable and to not do something that's going to get you in trouble later or enable them to avoid the substance of what you're saying because they're fixating on how you said it, which, gosh, sometimes does happen, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> They use how you said it to avoid dealing with what you said. So this way, if you offer what you're saying in a cleaner, clearer kind of way, then they just have to deal with it. And you can keep coming back to it and not get sidetracked right. by their objections to how you said it. Well, I'm thinking, too, um, going back to compassion yeah. and also empathy, if we're truly present, then we can start to recognize the common humanity. Yeah. Somehow, even looking at their face, they've got a face, I've got a face, they've got eyes, I've got eyes, you know. We both want to be out of pain and we both want to be feeling safe and loved. So if we go there, whatever the words that are said are not so triggering. Oh, completely true, because we feel more related. You know, you're 
kind of making me bring up this Global Compassion Coalition that I founded with colleagues around the world, uh, which now is just really cooking. And people can check it out at globalcompassioncoalition.org or just do a search on it. You'll find it. The basic idea there is that on the one hand, if you read the newspaper headlines, it looks like humanity is in deep trouble. And obviously, we are in certain regards. There are nuclear weapons. There is global warming. There are tragedies every day that 10,000 children die a day of hunger-related causes. The women are, and girls are put down and, and terrible things happen routinely. Many, many problems. I'm all for that. How are we going to solve them? In our biological history as homo sapiens, people like you and me, Justine, have walked the earth for 300,000 years. That's a long time. We evolved biologically a unique strategy of caring and sharing compassion and justice as the basis for our social life, the basis for our politics inside the bands. That's unique among hundreds of other primate species to live on the basis of compassion and justice. Inside of which people squabbled, they're irritated. You know, two people might want the same partner. They had to work it out. Okay, fine. The good of the many was the focus of the band. But then with agriculture and surpluses mm. and elites and wealth and power, it's been Game of Thrones for 10,000 years. And what are we going to do to change it? We have to scale up to 8 billion people what worked for 97% of the time our ancestors have walked this earth at the level of our individual tribes. How to do that is we need new frames. And so the purpose of our coalition is to convene a new kind of global commons, is to build a new kind of global commons in which millions of people and organizations worldwide who differ from each other in lots of ways can come together around one thing, which is that people matter, suffering matters. And if we care about uh, suffering, we must change its systemic causes once and for all. And so that's the fundamental purpose. People, it's free. It's wonderful. Come join us. Hey, hey, I've joined and New Dimensions joins. And I just encourage everybody because, as you say, we, this is the commons. We're looking for that place where we all agree. You yeah. know, that's what you're, you're, you're going down to that bedrock mm -hmm. of what humanity, as you said, for 10,000 years, we kind of lived in this other way. But for, for 290,000 years, we've lived in this coalition of cooperation and compassion yeah. and it's worked. That's our home base. Speaking of home base, that's our home base. And you know, there's the line like, you know, it's, Two fish are swimming past each other. One fish says to the other one, hey, how's the water? And the other one pauses and goes, what's water? What? Right? <laughs> it's the water we swim in. We, we think it's normal. It's not normal. It's not normal for, for, it's not normal for eight men right now, today, to hold as much wealth as four billion people. That's not normal. That's crazy cakes, right? It's not normal that 80% of the people in the world live under the thumb, if not the boot, of an authoritarian system, right? Only 6% of the world lives in a high-functioning democracy, which does not include the 340 or so million Americans in our own country right now, 
right? Right. We need to return to our home of compassion and justice. The two going together. And we need to find ways to make that happen. And the only way we're going to make it happen is by large coalitions forming, right? I don't know about you. In the pro-social world, the nonprofit world, the do-gooder world, it's really interesting. On the one hand, business people, aggressive business people, compete at the marketplace level, but they cooperate at the political level. They put their money in a single bucket. In the last 15 years, in America, the oil and gas industry has spent $2 billion to block climate change legislation. $2 billion. And you know what? They got what they paid for, right? If we were to compete with those kind of forces, we got to scale up. But the problem is most nonprofits, most pro-social organizations are the opposite. They're friendly at the marketplace level. They're nice to each other. They almost never put their money in a single bucket at the scale that's big enough to actually drive systemic change. And the examples of systemic change that we can look at, civil rights, women's rights, environmentalism, gay rights, and some others, while still we have a long way to go, okay. But in those examples, what happened? What made it work? Coalitions formed. People of very diverse interests and types, whatever, joined together under a single common cause and put their resources or money in a single bucket to make things be better. And that's what we need to do in the world today. So what we're doing in the Global Compassion Coalition is creating frameworks in which that can happen. You're creating a a way for people to work together Yes, where we resource one another and, and we really come together to to spark uh the that shift in consciousness right. that brings us back to brings us home again to mm. who we really are and we really are kind loving people who care about each other that's the truth even though the media and the internet and stuff will just keep feeding us with these algorithms of things that would tell us otherwise So this coalition, this Global Compassion Coalition, is really coming together. I'm very excited about it, Rick, is coming together with wonderful, powerful, earth-shaking movers Mm, and people that are agreeing that we can do this differently, and we must must go back to our roots. Mm -hmm. That's right, to create a frame. How do you create a frame? With high tech, the internet, right? Uh, How do you create a frame in which people can come together at a scale that's effective for the common good? Many, many people are doing great stuff. We're not trying to replace anybody. We're just trying to create a frame, uh, taking a page out of our ancestors' book, in which the many can come together for the greater good rather than what's been true for the last 10,000 years is that the few have run things for their own sake, but not for the greater good of everybody. So it's the global village, really, truly, the global village. So, Rick, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And I want to just remind people, if you want to know about his personal work, Rick Hansen, S-O-N, rickhansen.net, or... Go to globalcompassioncoalition.org 
or you can get to both of these through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you so much for being with us. This is program number 3785. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.